I'm going to tell you how that happens this morning. First Peter chapter number one, first Peter chapter number one, and verse 18. First Peter chapter one, verse number 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. A few days ago, I had the strangest dream that I've ever had. And I'm going to tell you about it, but I don't want you to put any stock in it. I normally would not make any reference to a dream because um, I, I don't, as I said, put any stock in dreams. But because because it makes a point, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to tell it to you. In my dream, I was in this room with a group of people that I know probably a meeting like this. I don't know, but I was seated on the front row. I was talking to the person on my left when suddenly I noticed that seated next to me on the right was John Pierpont Morgan. And I turned to the person on the left and I introduced them. I said, here is John Pierpont Morgan. And I said, he can help you. Well, when I woke up, I couldn't imagine how John Pierpoint Morgan got in my dream because there's no telling how many years, you know, since I'd even heard or saw his name. But that really wasn't the strangest part. I got up and uh, anytime I preach a message, even if it's the same message I preached, let's say, five years ago, I never just grab an outline and go preach it. I always... I always go through it again, just like I'm going through it for the first time. So I went over to the office and I started to study this message this morning on the blood of Christ. And as I often do, I had a particular commentary in mind that I wanted to check out. And so I turned to this commentary, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 18. And these are the first words that I had read, I've never read it before, never read it since, but this, this is the first thing I read here. Quote, John Pierpoint Morgan was a noted American financier and multimillionaire of an earlier generation. Before his death, he composed a will consisting of 37 articles and 10,000 words. While Mr. Morgan had been involved in transactions involving millions of dollars during his lifetime, he left no doubt in his will as to what was the most important transaction he had ever made. And in his will, he wrote, quote, I commit my soul in the hands of my Savior, full of confidence that having redeemed me, and washed me with his most precious blood, he will present me faultless before the throne of my heavenly Father. I entreat my children to maintain and defend at all hazards 
And at any cost of personal sacrifice, that blessed doctrine of complete atonement of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ once offered through that alone. And I about fell out of my chair. Why had I even thought of that guy? And I certainly would have never thought of him in the context of a Christian testimony. And and, and like I said, please don't put any stock in my dream. Don't go away from here saying Brother Stone had a dream and, you know, he's basing his messages on dreams. I'm just, uh, it was so unusual. I've never in my life experienced anything like that. But I do want you to consider the importance of what that man said in his dying will. It doesn't get any more important to that. I mean, you would think that his great concern would be for all of the all of the possessions that he had and so forth, and his great interest would be in instructing his children to make good investments and what have you. And he rose to the occasion and above, and he pinpointed the most important thing in any person's life. Now, let me say this. You will hear sermons that are better prepared and better delivered But you will never hear any sermon more important than this sermon this morning. Because the subject of it makes it just that important. Now anything so serious and any serious study of God's Word has to start and stay with the Bible. You can't base it on dreams. You can't base it on something you read in a commentary that was written by man. You can't base it on tradition that was handed down to you by grandma and grandpa. We must begin at the beginning, which takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. When we go there, and because you're familiar with chapter 3, I'm not going to read all of it, but when we go back, we see, first of all, a glorious beginning. I mean, how could it be any better than that? Everything was absolute perfection there in the beginning. But we also in that chapter see the grievous fall of man. And so no sooner are we told of his ruin than we discover the gracious remedy for man's problem. It's presented to us in the form in the form of a type. In verse number 21, the Lord said, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skin and clothe them. Now you remember, after they had sinned, they hid from God because at that moment they died spiritually. That is to say, they were separated from God. The connection between man and God was broken at that very moment. They died spiritually. They began to die emotionally, and ultimately they were going to die physically. That Those are the consequences of their sin. And the first thing they did was to hide themselves in the garden because they knew they had violated God's righteous standard. So here they are hiding in the garden, and they made themselves a fig leaf apron, clothing, to hide their nakedness. And God comes to them. 
So many times we talk about us turning to the Lord, but we need to remember that we love Him because He first loved us. He comes to us. As, as Squire Parsons sings that beautiful song, He came to me. Thank God He did or there wouldn't be any hope. And there wouldn't have been any hope had the Lord not sought them out. And He said, Adam, where art thou? Well, that question wasn't for God's information. God knew exactly where they were. But he, He's asking that question so they'll deal with the issue that they're now separated from God, hiding from God, living in fear. And so the Lord comes to them and, 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 and makes for them these clothes made out of the animal skins. Now, nobody will ever understand his nature and his needs without understanding Genesis chapter number 3. Because here we see sin, shame, and the substitute that God provided. As a result of their sin, the first physical death should have been Adam and Eve. That's the way it should have been. I mean, that's the way you would have thought it would have been. I mean, they're the ones that sinned against God and the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But instead of them dying physically, innocent, an innocent animal died instead. Why? And why didn't just, you know, God accept what they had made for themselves? Why did He even bother with clothes at all? Well, here's the answer. God was teaching them, and He wanted to teach them so He could reach them. He wanted them to understand that salvation could only come through His promise. That promise is in verse number 15, by the way, where He says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And remember, He's speaking here to Satan now. And he says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy that speaks of Christ as the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man, which is the ordinary way to refer to offsprings. God took the male element out of it, and for a very good reason. The seed of the woman, he says, is going to prevail. So he's letting them know this is the provision that I'm going to provide for you. And by way of a type or a shadow, God illustrated that in taking those innocent animals and shedding their blood and taking the skins and covering their nakedness. All of that teaches us four simple things. First, man needs a covering for his sin. Secondly, man's efforts to cover himself are always inadequate. Number three, God alone can provide what we need. And number four, God's provision always requires the shedding of blood. That is the death of an innocent substitute. God, He doesn't go into detail and describe all of the details here, but Adam and Eve has witnessed death for the first time. Think about that. I mean, that must have been shocking. 
for the first time, in some way or another, they witness death because now they are clothed in the skins of the animal that died and thus begins the river of blood that flows throughout all of the Bible. Now with that introduction, I want you to think of three things. I want you to consider the instances where we see the importance of the blood, the importance of it, and the imperative of it. As to the instances of blood, you can trace the bloodline from the beginning to the end of the Bible. That is, all the way from Genesis, all the way through the book of Revelation. So there can be no doubt whatsoever about the importance of blood in the sight of God. He obviously wants our attention, our focus to be on the blood. So we go back to chapter number 3. And here we see the blood starting to flow in this chapter when God clothed Adam and Eve. We turn to chapter number 4 and we see the blood where Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice unto God than did Cain. We go to chapter 22 of the book of Genesis and there we see God providing a substitute for Isaac. You remember the story where Abraham and Isaac goes up into the mountain there God is instructing Abraham to offer up Isaac. Isaac is confused, but he's obedient. He lays down there on the altar that had been prepared, and he inquires about the sacrifice. And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb, a sacrifice. Let that sink in. Not, not that God's just going to provide a sacrifice, but rather God's going to provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's exactly what he, what he did. We go to Exodus chapter number 11 and we see the blood sprinkled on the doorpost where, wherein the children of Israel are delivered from their hard bondage. And then throughout all of the Old Testament, by way of all of the many sacrifices throughout all of the centuries, there, there is a river of blood that flows from one generation to another generation as over and over and over again the Levitical priest as they offered up their sacrifices to God. And all of this was done as a shadow or a type. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that the blood of the bulls and the goats, they could never take away sin. All that did was to picture the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who would ultimately make the supreme sacrifice. So we come to the New Testament and over and over again we find references to the importance of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, throughout all of history, man has known that there is something important about blood. I mean, they, they might not relate it to the Bible or to God whatsoever. They might not have any understanding of that. But it seems that some way man has always known that there is something about the blood, whether it's the Aztecs or some other, some other people that are going through their religious rituals and in some cases literally offering up their own children as blood sacrifices. But over and over again we see it. But for all of the blood that has ever been shed, 
Nothing could avail except the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That alone could secure our salvation. So we see the importance of the blood of Christ being emphasized over and over again. It's important for several reasons. First of all, it is sacred blood. Remember John chapter 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, God Himself was made flesh. God Himself dwelt among us. God Himself offered Himself as a suitable sacrifice. We're talking about sacred blood. Not just any blood, but sacred blood. It was sinless blood, according to what we just read here in First Peter. Notice, we were not redeemed with corruptible things, but notice He says, with the precious blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, all other human blood had been tainted by the corruption of Adam's sin. Now I realize that we can't, we can't even begin to comprehend how all of this works, but the fact of the matter is, we sin, we sin because we are sinners. You know, I mean, it's in our nature. And it was in, you know, the Bible says that children are born into this world speaking lies. It's something that, while we don't have to teach children to do wrong, they're going to do that automatically because it is within them in some way beyond our understanding. But whenever the Lord came into this world, He came of the seed of the woman, removing the male element and thus not passing along that corrupt bloodline to the Lord Jesus Christ. Since He was born of a virgin, there was no sin to be found in Him. This is sinless blood we're talking about, sacred blood. But more than that, it was sacrificial blood. So many times, we, and just about anybody here could quote John 3.16, you know, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That is to say, He sacrificed His only begotten Son. You see, Christ was God's way of presenting Himself as an offering. I, I, to think about that, the blood that was given sacrificially was God's own blood. He suffered and died for us. Now remember, God is spirit, right? That's what the Bible says. God is a spirit. No man has seen God at any time. So how does God deal with this issue? How can God be just and in some way justify those who are condemned? How, how can that happen? Because since God is a just God, He can't change. He can't just wave His hand and dismiss our sinfulness. He can't do that. So how in the world can there be any hope for the lost sinner? How can God be just and the justifier? Well, Paul tells us in Romans, it was through Christ that He is both just and the justifier because God laid down His own life. He gave His life, His blood, that we might be saved. It's substitutionary blood that was shed. It was not due to anything that He had done. It was not done, you know, without some purpose. He died in our stead. He took our place just across the page in chapter 2 and verse 24. It says, who His own self, 
bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Substitutionary blood. And then it was sufficient. It was sufficient in that God accepted that. First John 1, 7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth from all sin. Regardless of what else that we might have done, regardless of what we might have tried, regardless of what kind of a contribution that we offered to the world that we live in, regardless of how much we might have praised God or anything else that we could have possibly imagined, none of that would have been satisfactory. As I've said so many times, if you could go around the world and you could gather the best deeds from the best people that ever lived throughout all of the centuries in some way bring all of those good deeds there to the throne of God and ask, would this suffice for my entrance into heaven? God would say no. And we would inquire, why? What more could it take? And God would say, those are all as filthy rags. When the Bible speaks about our righteousnesses, and that is in the plural, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The reference there is to a rag that was erected there in a leper colony where those lepers just awaiting death, suffering day by day, and they would use that old filthy, dirty rag to wipe off those putrefying, runny sores. In other words, it is so graphic in order to depict the awfulness of our sins. And that that's what our righteousnesses are like in the sight of God. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to merit salvation. No way we can earn salvation. That's why baptism, church member, being a good neighbor, or anything else you can think of, none of those things are acceptable to God because nobody is earning their way with God. It's not by our contributions. It's all totally by grace alone. It's through God's mercy and through God's grace. Thank God His blood is sufficient. We don't have to add anything to it. In fact, you can't add anything to it. If you try to add anything to it, then you nullify the effectiveness of the blood to you personally. It would become meaningless. As Paul said to the Galatians about those that had preached another gospel, which he said is not really another gospel because there's only one gospel, but it was another gospel in the sense that these people were being taught, oh yeah, what you're teaching, Paul, is just fine, but you have to add something to that. You know, you have to add circumcision to it, or you have to add baptism to it, or something else has got to be added to it. It's like a lot of folks today. They would tell you, well, look, preacher, I've had people to tell me this. We believe the same thing that you do. We just don't see what it would hurt, you know, that if we go ahead and, 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 and be baptized because we've always been taught that baptism is an important part. And so we've got it covered both ways. No, you don't. You just ruined the effectiveness of the gospel because it's never Christ plus anything. It's always Christ and Him alone. And the very moment you try to add something to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've destroyed the effectiveness as it pertains to you being saved. 
There's no way that we can fail to see the importance of the blood if we take time to read the Bible. But beyond that, taking it a step further, it's not just a matter of it being important. We need to understand that it is imperative. We sing there is power in the blood because because it does what nothing else can do. Because it is the only possible way for us to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through the blood of Christ. I love what old Vans Havner said many years ago. He said, critics may scorn a bloody gospel and slaughterhouse theology. The blood songs may be taken away from our hymnals and professors may even teach that Jesus was tied to the cross instead of nailed there. But for all of that, he still declares to the Greeks who would see Jesus And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And it is the shed blood of a Calvary Christ, not the idealism of a crystal Christ that makes the sinner white as snow. Boy, did he ever hit the nail on the head with that. Amen. And and, and you better believe there are a lot of people today, a lot of denominations that have reconfigured their hymnals to take the blood out of the hymn books. They call it a slaughterhouse religion. You call it whatever you will, but it's only through the shedding of blood that you and I have any chance whatsoever of being a child of God. It's imperative because of our redemption. Notice what Peter's talking about. He said, you were redeemed not with the corruptible things like silver and gold, but rather with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about being redeemed, and we sing that song, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? That's the only way that it can happen. And every time I think of that word redeemed, I think of the sinner's condition before salvation. That he is not only separated from God, he is in bondage to Satan himself. He's taken captive of the devil at his will. He's in bondage just as the Jews were in bondage in Egypt and needed to be delivered through the blood, by the way. And every sinner is in bondage. You might think you're going to live as you please, but you just don't know really what's going on. You're not living as you please. I got news for you. You're like a puppet on a string, and Satan is pulling all of the strings. You're enslaved. You say, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as I could be. No, but you're as bad off as you could be. Because the devil doesn't care whether you go to hell from a bar stool or a church pew. Makes him no difference. In fact, he can probably get you in hell quicker from a church pew than he can from the bar stool. The old drunk on the bar stool, there's a good chance that he'll come to realize that I am enslaved to this habit and I need to be delivered from it and I can't get myself out of it. There's a good chance that he'll see his need and turn to Christ. But with the self-righteous church member, they don't see their need. Because they'll tell you, well, I walked down the aisle whenever I was seven years old. I walked down the aisle and I told the preacher I wanted to go to heaven when I died. And I, I, I think and I'm hoping that that's going to get me there. And that's all the religion they have. That's not redemption. Redemption is whenever you are set free, whenever you are redeemed, and that is exactly what happens through the payment of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That makes it in parity for our redemption. It makes it in parity for our righteousness also. In fact, Paul said in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says in verse number 30, that Christ is made unto us righteousness. In other words, we don't have any of our own, right? So Christ becomes our righteousness. We talk about it so many times as being imputed to us. It's not imparted to us because there's not a one of us that can stand up and honestly say, I am just as righteous as Jesus Christ because you're not. You're just a sinner saved by grace. That's all you are at this point. You're a sinner. You're going to heaven when you die, but you are still imperfect. But... The righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. That, that's a judicial term. It's like the judge declaring you, all right, you are perfectly innocent, justified. All charges against you are dismissed. You're free to go your way. That's what happens whenever Christ, you put your trust in Him, and God imputes the righteousness of Christ to you. That's why we talk about being wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Christ because now, now rather than looking at you and your filthiness, the rags of your righteousness instead of doing that, when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His own dear Son. And that makes you acceptable in the sight of God. Not only that, it's in parity because of our remission Remission, that is, for the forgiveness of our sins. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without shedding of blood is no remission. I'm so glad that when the Lord saved me, that He assured me that when I die, that I'd go to heaven. I'm really glad of that. And I'm really glad that when the Lord saved me, He made me a new creature. I become somebody that I'd never, ever been before. A brand new creature. He got me out of the bar rooms and He changed my life completely. But listen, there's more to it than that. I think the thing that just hit home with me so much more is the fact that when He saved me, He forgave me. Every sin that I had ever committed, every word, every deed, every thought, everything that violated His righteous standard, God said it's all forgiven because it's under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is remission, that is the forgiveness of our sins because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in parity for our redemption, our righteousness, our remission. But it's in parity also for our reconciliation. The Bible repeatedly talks about salvation as a being reconciled to God. Reconciliation has to do with the bringing together of two opposing parties. Have you ever, have you ever read Ephesians chapter 2 and noticed how Paul describes the condition of a lost sinner. They're the enemies of God. Every unsaved person, you might be the nicest person in this building. You might have good manners, decent morals by human standards, a generous spirit about you, and all of those things. But in the eyes of God, you are a rebel against God. 
You say, well, how, how can you say that about me? Well, because if you've never received Christ, the Bible says that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent, and you haven't. You haven't. You stubbornly go on your way rejecting the Lord, and there is this breach of fellowship between you and God. And through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are reconciled. You are brought into a state of oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's imperative for your reconciliation that you trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, it's imperative when it comes to the matter of rejoicing. Romans 5.11 says, We also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Amen. In other words, our, our redemption, our righteousness, remission, reconciliation, all of these things He's telling us gives us a reason to rejoice. To rejoice regardless of what the circumstances are, regardless of the difficulties of life, we can rejoice. I, I told Bev the other day she wasn't feeling good, and I told her, I said, uh, I want you to sing a song this morning. It's, I'm certain my all-time favorite song, especially the to hear her sing it and she used to sing it all of the time and had voice problems and she wasn't feeling good and I said I'm going to be praying that that you'll be able to sing it and she's still not this morning but I don't know of any song that just gets to the heart of, of what I'm trying to say this morning like an old song called deeper than the stain has gone and I'd give anything if I could sing it like her, and, and I can't. And I, I thought about just taking the time to read all of the words of that song. It is absolutely mind-boggling to me to think about the words of that song. But the first verse says, Dark the stain, that's all man's nature. Long the distance that he fell, far removed from hope and heaven, into deep despair and hell. But there was a fountain open, and the flood of God's own Son purifies the soul and reaches deeper than the stain has gone. I'm so glad that regardless of how vile your life has been, regardless of your rebellion against God and your treatment of others and the, and the mountain of sin that, that is against you, in, in all of, I want you to know that God's atonement, His blood sacrifice, goes deeper than all of your sins. We speak about Christ being our Savior. And well, we should, but we need to understand what we're saying. Listen carefully. Even Jesus Christ cannot save you apart from the shedding of His blood. By that I mean His moral goodness, His merciful deeds, 
His mighty miracles, His marvelous teaching, His monumental example, and all of those things, none of them could ever save you. If that's all Jesus did, and by the way, and even if Jesus had died from the beatings that He took, even if He had died from what we call, you know, just a natural death, None of that would have saved you. He could have jumped off of a mountaintop and died, and that would not have saved you. The only way that He could save you was through the shedding of His own precious blood. I read a story some time ago about a doctor in a rural village, and like most doctors back in that day, he had to deal with a lot of poor people, and a lot of times they couldn't pay. Well, after after his... After his death, uh, his widow got to looking into the books, and on several entries, she found written across in red ink, forgiven, too poor to pay. And again and again and again, she saw that. And she she got to thinking to herself, you know, that I, here I am in dire need financially, and all of these people that didn't pay for the medical treatment they received, and this woman finally decided that she was going to file suit against those people to recover those funds. So the judge took the document that, by the way, that where it was written in red, and he said, is this your husband's handwriting in red? And she replied that it was. And he made this statement. Then said the judge, not a court in the land can touch those whom he has forgiven. Isn't that great? Written in red. Amen. Lisa Karen sings that sometimes. Written in red. I want you to know that it has been written in red in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and not all of the courts of the land, nothing you ever do or could do could possibly, could possibly condemn your soul. Forgiven. I love that old song by Philip Bliss. Uh, once for all, it says, free from the law, happy condition, Jesus is bled and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace has redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross and the burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. Think about that. Once for all. Jesus died once for all. Those Jews, year after year after year, they kept bringing more sacrifices. But when Jesus died, it was once for all. Let me tell you, if you, if you could lose your salvation, the only way for you to get it back would be for the Lord to descend from heaven and do exactly what He did before. It would be the only way. That would be your only hope. But the good news is, when he died, it was once for all. I mean, he paid a debt. He paid a debt he did not owe. He paid a debt I could not pay. For I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. It's amazing grace all day long. That, that's the heart of our song. Amazing grace. All because our salvation depends not on what we do, but on what He did when He gave His blood. Have you put your trust 
in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't ask you if you'd join the church. Maybe you'll say, well, preacher, I believe in the virgin birth. Well, that's fine. The devil does too. You say, I believe in His resurrection. That's okay. The devil believes that too. You might even say, I believe He's going to come back again. The devil knows that's a fact. The one thing the devil hasn't done, and that is to put his trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's tried to deceive you at every turn. And I told you earlier, you'll hear sermons that are preached better, delivered better, prepared better, but there's nothing more important than this. Your eternal destiny depends on your attitude toward the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you trust Him this morning? Let's all stand together, Father. Lord, we don't even have the words this morning to express how we feel. Heavenly Father, there was no way that our mind can comprehend the greatness of Your love toward us. And I just pray this morning that You'll help that unsaved person see their need. That You'll help them to overcome their stubborn pride and stop pretending that everything is alright. And that this morning, that they in their lost condition might come before You with a broken heart and put their trust in what Jesus did when He suffered and bled and died on the cross. May they leave here today knowing the joy of having their sins forgiven, having their name written down in heaven, and, and leave here today knowing that heaven is their home. And Lord, that You would give them that peace that passeth all understanding that You'll remove that fear and that dread from their heart. But most of all, we pray that You'll save them in order that You might be glorified. May it never be anything said to our credit in any way for whatever we've done, but rather, rather it's because of Your amazing saving grace that makes us one of Your children. Let it happen here this morning, Lord, for we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen. While we stand as we sing together, would You come? for me, it was shed for you. He died for the whole world, tasted death for every man. I'm going to do something that I almost never do. I can't remember how many years it's been since I've done this. And I say that because it's been misused by so many preachers. But this morning, I want every person to bow their head, close their eyes, and I want you to be honest with me. And I'm not going to come back there and get you with the arm. I'm not going to pigeonhole you after the service is over and put any pressure on you whatsoever. This is between me and you and God. 
just for my personal knowledge that I'll better know how to pray for you. And please don't raise your hand because somebody else does. But I wonder how many of you this morning can honestly say, Preacher, I know that I have put my trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know I've been born again. I know if I died today, I'd go to heaven. I know there's no doubt whatsoever. Would you just slip your hand up and hold it up there for just a little while? Please don't look around. Don't do anything to embarrass others. All right. Thank you so very much. Now, perhaps you're one of those that couldn't raise your hand and you say, Preacher, I couldn't raise my hand, but, but I am concerned about my soul, and I really do. I really do want you and Brother Preston to be praying for me. I, I, I'm just tired of living this way. I, 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 really, I really want to get it settled. Would you just slip your hand up? I promise I won't embarrass you. Or I won't come to you. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. Anybody else? Anyone else? Heavenly Father, help those this morning that, that lifted their hand expressing the concern of their heart. I pray that you'll give them an understanding of, of the simplicity of salvation that is through simple childlike trust in what Jesus did and that they might come to know Him as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, for others that are not certain of their salvation, whether they raise their hand or not, I pray that You'll help them to deal with that issue and, and, and bring it before You. And Lord, that this morning, that even before this day has come to an end, that they might settle in their heart of knowing that they're saved. For we ask it in Jesus' name. While we sing this next verse, if we can help you, we'd love to do that. Would you come? Church.